Back on another one, Dr. Zero Trust Show with my good friend, Maureen. Maureen, if you wouldn't mind giving a quick intro on kind of who you are, what you do, and uh, your experience in the space. Yeah, so hey, good morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's just a delight to, to be able to be on your podcast and, and just have a nice, um, relaxing conversation about Zero Trust and Enterprises. Yes, I'm in the security uh, field, probably somewhere around almost, well, in software over 25 years, enterprise software sales over 25 years. And then I focused, um, when I joined IBM, I kind of focused on security with their SIM product, Curator, and uh, just a couple other products that they purchased over time. Big one for me was Big Fix. So that's kind of introduced me into the, uh, the security world, if you will. Um, I'm currently more of a, a security strategist. I work with large enterprise global companies. And my focus really is the, the starting point. You know, where do we get started uh, on this pathway? So that's what I focus on, more of a strategy with the enterprise accounts. So that's really interesting. I, I think one of the things that um, I'd love to hear your perspective on is is where do people start or where should they start? Because this is a really common question. I mean, small and mid-size is a slightly different animal than enterprise. But in your experience, when you're doing strategy and advising organizations uh, on how to start, where where do you think it begins? Right. And, and, you know, Chase, that was a huge topic this year at RSA, right? Zero trust. Is it, is it a buzzword? Is it real? If, if we want to embrace it, where do we start? What's the right first step? And, and for me, the, the answer always is, well, you know, um, in particularly enterprise space, where, what's your, what's your true, um, crown jewels? What do you really need to protect out the gate without hesitation. And when you have start having those conversations, you realize it might be archaic data. It might be a mainframe that houses a lot of legacy information. It might be something that you're rolling out. So the question, how do we start? Well, what's most important to you? And that's going to be very different for every conversation you have, uh, particularly on the, on the enterprise level. Um, I find currently that the big um, kind of conversations, hey, let's start with IAM, right? Let's start with uh, making sure we understand the identity and access management around our data. And sometimes I have to push back and say, are you sure that's where you want to start? It's a, it's a big adventure. So again, the answer that I usually pose is what do you want to protect immediately? And um, you know, how much time and bandwidth do you have to get started on this journey? Well, then I think the the thing that stands out there is is when you're dealing with these organizations that are as large as the ones you are. I mean, you're you're dealing with giant companies. How how hard is it to know what that data actually is? Because I mean, that goes back to Kindervog's original premise of ZT, right? Of know the crown jewels and then build your micro perimeters around it. Is it incredibly difficult? Is it a bridge too far for them to go? I know this, that, there, and we'll begin those because that's. I think that's where the twist has become in the uh, change to IAM, because IAM seems like a rinse and repeat, relatively solvable problem, but the data side of it is is exponentially larger. But you also told me some finer points before about that there's a, uh, a misconception about the ease of an IAM project, especially at the enterprise level. Correct. Well, I'm so glad you brought that up, because that was going to be the next um, kind of... Um 
area I wanted to address. So um, because I <clears throat> have a legacy around ITIL, which is um, helping building service management, I, I recall um, people saying, hey, I want to follow an ITIL methodology. And now currently everyone says, I want to follow a zero trust methodology. But are you prepared? Have you done the necessary prep work to make that uh, installation or that, yeah, that process um, a, 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 available and, and easily uh, uh, accepted? Give you a good example. If your data <clears throat> with MDB or wherever you might, wherever you might house that data, if that data hasn't been scrubbed and reviewed, then then you're going to go on a mission and and you're going to find yourself uh, just pro prolonging the mission because the data that you have is just not valid. A good example is summer hires. There's a lot of, of retail organizations that are going to hire for the summer. Now they're going to they're going to have to 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 remove that data from the database. You certainly don't want to add that into your IM experience, right? Because then it's it's obsolete. So I always start with, hey, let's do a little bit of hygiene. Let's go out and maybe do an ethical hacking engagement, uh, or, or let's go out and clean up the database. Let's do the pre-work that you need to do before you jump in and start to implement the IAM solution that you decide upon. So I think that's the key. Prime, really looking at the, the making sure the validity of the data, number one, and then where are the gaps? Where are the holes in the IAM solution? Well, so number one, if this is my this is my virtual hug, because finally somebody has said the thing that I tell people all the time is understand what you're doing and have a an under a real approach to the problem, which requires, in my opinion, a red team pen test, something like that. So finally, somebody else said it. Thank you, Maureen, for backing me up that I'm not totally yeah. off the res there. Um, Absolutely. But I, I guess the other part of it is if if uh, if we accept that data is the currency kind of that we deal with in the cybersecurity space, right? That's what that's what ultimately cybersecurity is about is defending data. When we're in a world where now it's no longer just structured data that is the thing to defend. It used to be uh, SQL databases only or MongoDBs or whatever. Now, if I write a blog today or if I, I don't know, come up with a some other sort of formula for Coca-Cola or whatever, like the, the, the change in data has become uh, an intricate problem to fix. So when you're, when you're thinking and talking with these organizations about securing these disparate types of data, yeah. how would you prescribe that they approach that problem? Because it's not as easy as just putting a micro perimeter around that because it's, it's more transitory, more ethereal. Right, wow, that was a lot there. So yeah, so I think um, I, I go back to, <clears throat> What's most important to the business and what brings value to the business, right? Because like you mentioned, I, I used to work in, in the higher ed space and I had a very prestigious client and all they really wanted they protected was um, things that influenced the students and kept the students safe. So if, if, if it were if it were data around them trying to get a doctorate or different things. So again, I, I go back to saying um, what's important to the establishment. We have financial customers who are on mainframes. Um, they sometimes often say this is we want to focus our zero trust methodology on the mainframe section first because we have legacy data. It's very important and we need to keep, you know, keep our eye on that, right? Because that's what we talk about zero trust. You can't protect what you can't see, right? So I'm um, not sure if that is answering or sharing on the same pathway, but that's probably what I would advise um, most, most of our larger enterprises to 
do. And then, of course, uh, you know, once you decide we're going to go down this path. And, and I, I have to say, sometimes I am is not really the first step. I think it, it's a big, big accomplishment. Maybe you start with something that allows you a quick win to the board. Because one thing I will tell you, um, not all um, security uh, uh, uh organizations are treated the same. Some have that office downstairs below on the, the bottom second half of, of an organization with no windows, and they're not talking to the people that on the 14th floor, right? So they, it's just, you have to figure out, you know, number one, first and foremost, those groups, security and business, we've got to figure out a way to come together. So the other, one of the other things I, I strongly suggest is creating some sort of advisory board. I like to call it the Z-Tab, Zero Trust Advisory Board. You can call it whatever you want, right? But you've got to get the business and the IT and security to come together and start having those conversations. And like I said, maybe it's a multi-authentication process that you need to work on and start there. Get that win, then go back together to the board and say, okay, now we've got that win. This is working. Now we need more funding or we, we need more support to number two win. And maybe that's micro-segmentation, right? So again, I, 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 I always go back to what is most important to your business should your business be breached. What is it that you do not absolutely you know, can, can shut down the, the, the business for a, a long period of time if, it, if that particular area was breached. How do you how do you find uh, these enterprises are accepting the concept of zero trust? Is it a oh my god another one of these things, or is it you have total buy in? Like, what's the conversation at that really high level? You know, it's that's a great question, and it's I always laugh because it's all over the board, right? I I most mostly in the C level, the CISO, or just right underneath the deputy CISO or the deputy, the right-hand man. And I have often seen both of them have different descriptions of what zero trust means to them. So it is all over the board. But I will say the one thing that they all agree upon that zero trust will bring to them is an a roadmap, a method, a roadmap, uh, a plan, if you will, to make sure the data, they understand where it is at all times and that they need to protect it. So, the, so you know, they always say, well, you can't protect what you can't see or, you know, always view that you are being um, <clears throat> under assumed breach. That, that we all see or understand uh, globally because I speak to a lot of companies uh, that are, are obviously on global nature. I may not enter uh, or, or be invited to the table at the at the U.S. office. It might be in the in the Germany office or wherever they're located. Right? It's not always the same uh, entry of particularly larger customers. So yeah, that's it's interesting. But I believe through a lot of efforts over the last six or seven months, the 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 theory or the methodology or whatever they want to call it is starting to resonate and it's starting to be impactful. And we're getting success stories about how before this and after, and, and, and a lot of people saying, if we can do this, and then they, they, they start to study zero trust, it's like, oh, okay, we can, right? Because ultimately we want a pathway to make sure the landscape is protected, right? So you have to Make sure you, you put those instruments in place, have those conversations, read those articles, attend those uh, conferences, and educate yourself, not only from, from top down, but very, very clearly from bottom up as well. Do you, do you think that there's uh, 
too much noise in the market for a lot of these CISOs and leaders to understand what they actually would get value out of? Is it is it in your experience, I guess you'd say bad that we have so much buzz in ZT? I, you know, it, it is bloated, right? I, I would say the security market in general is bloated, right? There's so many vendors doing the exact same thing. Even more than that, um, a lot of vendors in the enterprise space have multiple um, uh, uh, products that do similar things. So there's a, a, an opportunity there prior to jumping into onto your mission or your, your, your pathway, you might want to optimize some of the software. And that's where a lot of people think, oh, zero trust, it's going to cost a lot of money, or this is a new pathway. We all have to think differently. And in actuality, it's just a way to say, okay, if you have these three uh, products, these three software products, and they're similar, quite similar, they have similar um offerings, maybe you should take a step back and optimize what you have. That to me would be step, actually that's step one, step, excuse me, step one, two. Step one would be figuring out where your gaps are, right? Because you don't need to buy another product if, if, if you haven't figured out where the true gaps are. Then once you establish the gaps, then to optimize the current products, maybe you can fulfill them. And then maybe, and if you can't, then you go out and you begin to shop for it. Right. So that I, I think would be, would be key. Is, uh, is it, uh, I get a lot of feedback on the whole, you know, telling your employees, uh, they have a problem with telling their employees, we're going to put zero trust in place because their employees are <laughs> not worried about not being trusted. Is that, is that a real thing? Cause I don't know that I've actually <laughs> run into that. I've heard a lot of lip service, but I've never actually run into an organization that says our employees are freaked out about us not trusting them. Um, no, I, I've never really heard that um, um, from any, again, I'm not actually speaking to the employees that are not in the security world. So that might be why I've never heard, but no, I haven't heard of that, but I've have heard, um, I think more of, Hey, I'm not sure we want to adapt this way, you know? And I mean, and that could be many different things. I think we have, in all fairness, people who are now getting into the mid-50s, closer to the 60s, and zero trust, they might just not have the appetite to want to learn something different, right? Unfortunately, you know, those people, we also, back, those people also didn't have cell phones, or I should say smartphones, right? And now we do. So it's, growth is inevitable. Moving forward is inevitable. The amount of data we process today versus what we did, you know, 10 years ago, it's just massive, right? So you, you have to just embrace the fact that you will never stop learning. And you just have to embrace the fact that zero trust is probably going to be something that's not going to go away and embrace it. And then once you embrace it, then, you know, you can move forward with that. So I do see that happening more than not. Right. And the CISOs, I also have to mention, they're also becoming younger, right? They're 37, 40. So they understand it. And I think that might be one of the bridges that needs that, that, that that's a bridge that has been caused because the IT department is a little bit more, mature and in a sense that they don't want to change anything. So they're not wanting to play in the same sandbox with security sometimes. Do you think that with uh, the, the new generation that's coming into enterprise, I mean, I was talking with a couple of pretty large businesses the other day that said that I think it was something like 70% of their new hires were people under the age of 30. Um, yeah. Or, 
were coming in and these are people that have never been a day in their life without Wi-Fi. They don't, they don't, <laughs> they don't even know what it is, you know, how it works, but they know what they get when they don't have it. Is, is that going to impact the chain? And um, the other piece I'd like to get into is, is your view on these organ these enterprises and the remote work thing. I mean, we've got people that are literally going to companies and saying, no, nah, I'm not coming to work for you in the building because it sucks and I don't like, you know, traffic. Uh, is that going to continue to drive this adaptation? Right. So um, so let's go back to the first first question, if you don't mind, because I think that's important. So I have three children all over the eight. One, the old the youngest is 30. The oldest is 35. So with that said, mom, if you don't um, get this done within 15 or 20 minutes or if this doesn't happen within the next 20 seconds, I'm off to the next idea. I went on vacation with my son and as um, Chase, they were choosing the restaurant based on the 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 uh, scores, right, of the restaurant, and, and, and then they clicked and they res reserved it within 15 minutes. So yes, sir, it is highly impactful. We must move quickly. We also have to understand that this generation. Um, again, they, they move everything fast with the, with the control of a swipe, right? No logging in. They don't want to add anything. Just swipe and go. So that is obviously very data heavy, right? It's a data centric world. It coming in and going out. So to answer that question, yes, uh, we have to be on our toes. We really need to figure out a process and bundle that down very, very quickly because the generation just doesn't have a lot of time. I mean, why is TikTok so incredibly successful? Because you can learn something in probably eight or nine seconds. I mean, that's awesome. Yeah, TikTok that, taught me, right? Isn't that their thing? TikTok taught me. Yeah, that's yeah, their Yes, logo. exactly. And if it's a hack or something to work, I mean, I loved YouTube through a three and a half minute video, right? Now, no, please, I need to just do it very quickly. So to answer the question, yeah, the younger generation, they want things quick. They want it smooth, frictionless. They love that word and they, they live by that. And that's what we now, that's the data and the concepts we have to, to protect. So that would be that situation. And you asked me, the other question was, um, yeah, about, um, I'm sorry, you had the, the second The move part. to remote work and the fact remote that people work. are Correct. basically, I mean, it's, it's, we've seen, I think one of the biggest, uh, I guess you'd call it power shifts in the enterprise space because of COVID where now, um, ma a matter of fact, I had somebody the other day that was asking me, they said, hey, I got this job offer and the job offer's great, but they said the boss requires me to come into work five days a week. And my answer back to them was tell them no. Um, they were like, you know, cause this is a job I've thought about. What My response was if, if your boss is telling you unequivocally, you have to physically be in this office five days a week and it's not like a skiff or a secret compartment, you know, type of a government role, tell them no, cause there's no real reason you shouldn't be able to at least work remote a few days a week. I, I agree 100%. Um, you know, I, I spent most of my career in San Francisco, California. The the the, the traffic, I, it's hard for me just to really describe that unless you've lived in it. So your technology- It's hell with four wheels. Correct. <laughs> and, and not to mention, right, you, you try, try to invent new ways. So you say, I'm, I'm going to leave at 6.15, then I'm going to go this route on Tuesdays. And you know, it is- a huge part of your life, unfortunately, traffic. So when you bake in two and a half to three hours, plus you work all day, I get it. As a mom, 
It's not necessary. There are absolutely people that are far more productive, right, working from home because they can schedule that lunch with their their child or they can schedule time to go outside and walk or exercise. Of course, it's about the quality of life that we're talking about. So it's far greater, you know, than your boss saying, I want you to be around your peers. Well, what if your situation is um, is toxic and you don't want to be around your peers because no one wants to be in the office, right? So there's a lot more to that. We now need to step up and we need to adjust as, as people that employ, they need to step up. That that error is gone. That window, that time when you can hurdle everyone in and feed them fresh fruit and margaritas on Fridays, gone. We want, we want to be with our families. We want a quality of life, right? And in return, Mr. Employee, Mr. Employee, we're going to give you a quality hours or seven and a half quality hours, right? So, um, yeah. And then we now, as as a business, have to secure that that ability. That is our responsibility, just as it was my responsibility to get in the car for an hour and a half to go work at Oracle or whatever, right? That was my responsibility. So I'm, I'm glad that it's, you know, the shift has changed and it's up again. We just got to happen um, as well as, as people who employ. Yeah. When I was working at Accenture in downtown uh, Arlington, I live out in the you know countryside or whatever else. I hate traffic so much. I would leave my house at 4 a.m. I would get to the office and I would sleep on the couch in the office until seven. And then when my uh, workday was over at three o'clock, I left and went home. So, I mean, you know, it was uh, it, it. And I just can't um, these these organizations that are moving to remote. It's great. Like it should be that way, in my opinion. But the the problem that we continue to run into there is they just go. Okay, you want to be remote, be remote. No one's actually lining up and going, if you're going to be remote, here's the things we're putting in place. Here's the structure. It's it's usually be remote. Here's your 0365 login, you know, best of luck and hope you can keep the production up. It, the, the security strategy for remote work is still, I think, in most enterprises, years behind. Yeah, I, I would have to agree with that. And again, you know, um, you have to change because I, I I believe that some of the best skilled workers like you just, you know, as you just did. Yeah. At first you create ways to make you know yourself productive. But at some point you say, you know, my value to the company is far greater. They're just going to have to accept I am. This is a part of it. And I'm going to work remote. So and then there might be a time, quite frankly, I don't have a problem working. I don't mind going into an office a couple of days, but my life scenario has also changed. My children are grown. You know, I have more. I actually have a, 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 a curiosity to help others, right, or more or less help them with their issues and, and just to, to be more productive in a different way in an office scenario, right? Because we have younger um, younger people now, and I, I understand the, the, the value that the company gets because you're slightly in a weird kind of way mentoring and training and helping the, the team. So when we're all together, I, I get that. But it has to be something you want to do, you know, and and it has to fit your lifestyle at that time. Yeah, I the I was talking with this. On a, we're slightly off tangent here, but we're having an interesting. This, the the thing that I talked with a board the other day about that was saying, well, what do we do about this remote work? And we talked about the security side, and then they were asking, well, what do we consider for all this office space that we have to pay for? My response to them was there's lots of startups looking for office space and they want their people to be physically there so that they can interact and play ping pong or whatever the hell they all do. So like sublet that stuff out, bring them in, let your other people work from home. Everybody wins. 
Exactly. Yeah. You just have to just re, re, you know, just readjust and make it happen. You know, that's what businesses do. Successful businesses have to mature and, and, and just compose themselves accordingly. Do you also uh, running into the space when you're talking with organizations around the budget? Cause these budget cycles for ZT are getting really big. How do they look at this? Uh, how we budget for this thing? Do they just go, we had security budget now it's ZT budget or are they evolving pieces and pe like, how is that working? Cause I've seen, I've seen it shotgunned across all the organizations I've talked with. It's very interesting you brought that up because that is a, 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 an important part of an enterprise uh, discussion. Um, and this is how I like to approach it. And I hope, um, you know, others will look at it this way as well. So when you talk about a ZT budget, and if you do have a ZTAB, a Zero Trust Advisory Board, now you're getting somewhere because then you can go to the HR budget. You can go to the sales and marketing budget. You can go to other parts of the organization because holistically, security stems from soup to nuts. I often hear about people's, the funny stories about, you know, people being hacked and, and, and then people say, well, they spent X amount of money training their people not to click on, <laughs> on these links. And yet they continuously do it. And it's all over the board. Recently, a very prestigious uh, software development company just got hacked because someone clicked on a phishing email. Then you look at, you know, hospitals, listen, it's all over. So, so I want to do focus on that, but because that's important. How do you uh, establish and get you know uh, support for your ZT budget. The answer is you have to speak to everyone in the organization. It is not just you, uh, you know, CISO security. It's all of us. So when you're having those conversations, you know, it might be that time now when we start to understand that the budget needs to be pulled from all the different um, market units and then create that. And again, small little wins that provide um, a return on investment to the board will keep you healthy and supported throughout your journey because it really never ends, right? We, we always say that. Um, I don't like when marketing people say, hey, you buy this product, you're now ZT ready, no more worries. Next year you can you know, do something else. It really doesn't work that way, um, right? So um, so that would be the answer to the, to, to the budget scenario. Uh, I've had CISO say, oh my gosh, Marie, for the first time this year, my, my entire budget was, was, um, was granted and we're ready to go in January. And then we come together January, February, like, oh, well, mm, some of it was taken or this happened now. Or, so again, I, I can't stress enough, uh, particularly for our security units, please get yourselves aligned throughout the entire business and have that complete, that conversation that encompasses most or all of the market unit. Yeah. And it's even worse, I guess you could say in the federal space, right? Because, um, you know, being retired military, everybody doesn't spend money up until uh, the beginning of September. And then September, they spend what's left in the budget by yeah. the end of October. So like right now it's the 9th of uh, August guaranteed week one of September, the money is going to just start flowing like blood because it's going to be, we got to spend this because we won't get it back next year. And then the question becomes either your budgeting kind of sucks because you should have spent that money when you had it during the year, or you're really not putting money where it needs to go because you have leftovers that you were budgeted for. 
Right. It's there's some bad habits, and I'd like to just call it that. I spent a little tiny bit of time um, in in that space, Chase, and I, I recall that because it did not align with the commercial space. Um, but but I, I would do an enormous amount of proposal. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm just writing up all these proposals, and I, you know, when is this going to kind of come through? Do you think we're going to get this? I'm like, no, no, don't worry, we have extra budget. But I thought this is these are this is going to kind of bad habits here because they're, they they have created this this way of purchasing and like you said they have additional and they want more next year so they have to spend and sometimes they're buying things that might, might have actually sat on the shelf if i'm not if i'm being brutally honest with you so good question you know good 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 thought there and yeah um you gotta you gotta break the bad habits i think you just gotta really kind of segment it out a little bit so I always like to wrap up with, um, you know, from someone that's got the great experience that you have, like what would be something you would tell another person in your particular place or anyone else for that matter, what not to do and kind of this approach to the problem side of it and big, broad question, but in your experience, if you were going to tell somebody a, a mentee or whoever else, don't do this, what would that don't thing be? Um, cause that we have so much do, which is great. But really, there's a lot of value in also avoiding the problems. I, don't align yourself with people who really cannot impact the security decisions. And I'm not, oh, but you know, Marine people call. I need to. You have to provide um, uh, what we call, <clears throat> you know, different types of, of, of quotes and proposals and unsolicited proposals and. Oh, and then what ends up happening is if you're not speaking to the true decision makers, sometimes it's a little bit of a waste of your time. And quite frankly, right now, the security space is very different than any other space I've been. You're really a consultant because it's somewhat new. Zero trust is somewhat new. So you're not really selling something. You're really consulting. So just, you know, provide enough information, right? And then when it comes down to now we really need to figure out what we're going to do and work with those people who can make those decisions. So there you, there you have it. Uh, so many folks have asked the question about how to work in the enterprise space, how to deal with major organizations, what not to do in that approach. Maureen Rosado, who knows more about this than any five people I can think of, and he's got really clear, honest answers about it. Um, I can't thank you enough for giving me your insights. And uh, I'd love to you know, reference and point towards your work as, uh, as this continues to evolve. So if you're looking for somebody that knows how to do this stuff and the right type of people to talk to, reach out to Maureen. Hey, yeah. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Disclaimer, the information in this podcast episode, aka episode, is provided for general information purposes only. By listening to this episode, you understand that this is not specific technical guidance from the host. No information contained in this episode should be construed as security advice from the author, host, or guest, nor is it intended to be a substitute for security advice on any particular subject matter. No listener of this episode should act or refrain from acting on the basis of any information included in or accessible through this episode without seeking the appropriate technical or other professional advice on the particular facts and circumstances that are discussed. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All views expressed therein are those of the host and his guest and should not be considered as being endorsed by nor related to the host or the guest's employers.